So Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look today at the first three verses, only three verses that we're looking at today. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God this morning, and then we'll pray and, and be seated and start working our way through it. Uh, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. If you're new to Destiny Church, uh, the Bible is not a book written by men, rather it is a book written by God through men. The Holy Spirit inspired these words to be written. And so as we gather every Sunday, we gather in the name of Christ to worship Jesus, our King, and to hear his word so that we might live faithfully as his people. Amen. And so the word of God says, Philippians chapter 3, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help your word to go forth this morning with clarity, uh, Lord, with the anointing of your spirit, with power, Lord, that your truth would rest heavily in our hearts, Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear what it is you want us to hear today, that you would open up our eyes for us to see what it is you want us to see today, and Lord, that you would help us through the power of your spirit to obey your word, Lord, not to just be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but Lord, that we would put it into practice and that we would live faithfully for you. Lord, this world is so full of darkness, but you have called us, your people, the church, to be the light in the world. We will not be the light if we ignore your word. We will not be the light if we hide your word, but we will be the light as we live your word and preach and proclaim your word, Lord, not only through our actions, but also through our words. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you, our King, our Savior, our Lord, our returning champion who has won the victory, and we celebrate that victory today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So before we start walking through this this morning, there's something I have to point out to you here right at the beginning that I think is really funny. Uh, you might not think it's funny. I actually think it is funny. And that is that Paul begins this uh, section of, of the book. We've been going through Philippians now for several months. We've walked through chapters 1 and chapter 2, which lay out sort of the doctrine that he has for us. And now we transition really from doctrine to personal application and, and applying those truths to our lives. And he starts Philippians chapter 3 by saying, finally. And I just think it's funny that finally, he's, you know, he says finally, but then there's still two more chapters of Philippians to go. He, he doesn't conclude, but rather he continues, and, and it's only halfway through the book. And so I just wanted to point out to you that if ever I say finally and then do not conclude, but rather continue to preach for a really long time, I'm only being biblical, okay? That's just the biblical way to do it. So 
if ever you hear me say finally and it just keeps going, just understand I'm trying to be as biblical as possible. Moving on from that, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is the theme he's going to go back to and emphasize again in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And so we'll look at this idea more in depth when we get to it there. But just briefly this morning, I just want to point out to you that it is God's will that you rejoice in him. It is God's will, it is his heart's desire for you that you should, that we should rejoice in him, and that is that we should find our joy in him. That he is the one that is our source of joy. That the Lord Jesus, and this is the truth, is the only true source of lasting joy. Now, temporary happiness and gratification can be found in other places, temporarily, and in many different places. But true and lasting joy, true and lasting joy, you will only find in one place, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone satisfies the soul. Now, we live in a world that would say that there are many other ways to find joy, In fact, every single commercial you will ever see is always appealing to you and telling you you will find joy in some place else other than Christ. That you will find joy in this pill or joy in this program or joy in Coca-Cola. All you need to do is drink Coke. If only we as Christians could be as happy as the people drinking Coke on those Coke commercials. (laughs) That that's all that you need. Of course, we know it's all a lie. The only source of true and lasting joy is Jesus Christ. He alone satisfies the soul. The Bible says that in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 107.9 says that he satisfies the longing soul And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Listen, if your soul is longing for something this morning, stop trying to satisfy your soul with material things. Stop trying to find your satisfaction in other people, in earthly relationships. Human beings will always let you down. There's only one who is perfect, and his name is Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus today because he is the one who will bring satisfaction to your longing soul. In fact, you were designed by God, created in the image of God, to know Him, to be in an intimate and close relationship with your Creator. That is what brings true and lasting joy, not a temporary happiness that is based only on circumstances, because sometimes circumstances are good and sometimes circumstances are bad, but the joy of the Lord the Bible says it's even our strength, that even in the, the hard times and the difficult times that are taking joy in him, are rejoicing in the Lord, is a great source of strength to our soul. And so it is God's will that we should find our joy in him. The second thing, moving on, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. 
So what are these same things that he's writing to them? So I, I just, uh, by way of reminder, Paul planted this church in Philippi. He visited there on his second missionary journey. Uh, he, he moved into the a, uh, region of Asia, uh, I'm sorry, Europe, and planted this church, which is in modern-day Greece. He planted this church in Philippi. And he uh, preached the gospel there. He raised up a, a, a wonderful church there. He left there, and now he's writing back to them, and he's encouraging them. And so when he says to write the same things to you, what he's doing is he's reminding them of, of what he's already taught them. He's reminding them of the truth that he already shared with them. What he's about to go into and all he's been talking about already and, and everything in this letter, in fact, is nothing new for them. In fact, he's just stirring them up on what they already know and believe. And likewise, for us, this is also imperative that we are constantly reminded of the truth of God's word, that we're constantly reminded of the truth of the gospel. He says it is safe for us. It is a safe thing for us to, to constantly stir ourselves up, to stir our hearts, to reaffirm in our minds the truth that we already know. Why do we do this? Well, because we live in a world that is full of lies. Amen. We are constantly being bombarded with lies and deceit and deception and spin and slants, and angles, and, and partial truths, and, and half-truths, and mostly lies mixed with a little bit of truth. In a world full of lies, we need to constantly be reminded of the truth. In a world full of darkness, we need constantly to be shown the light of God's Word. In a world full of counterfeits, fakes, forgeries, we need to be reminded of and shown what is real, what is genuine. In a world that is full of lust, masquerading and parading as love, we need to be reminded of what true love really is. In a world that is so materialistic, in a culture that is so wholeheartedly uh, filled with materialism, finds its worth in possessions, we need to be reminded of the spiritual realities, Amen. of the spiritual condition of our hearts. We need to be reminded not of the material, but of the, the transcendent of the holy in a world that is so filled with secularism and humanism, we as God's people need to be reminded of the sinful nature of man and the redeeming power of the cross. Mankind is not its own savior. We do not look within to find salvation. We look Without, we look outside, we, we look up to God for salvation. Mankind cannot, in its own efforts, create some sort of utopian society because the heart of man is desperately sick. The heart of man is, is diseased with sin. The heart of man is evil and corrupt. We will not save ourselves, and in fact, every attempt that we make to save ourselves, 
to build some sort of utopian society turns into hell on earth. Secularism and humanism, when you remove God from the picture and you put man in the center, it turns into totalitarian hellscapes, dystopian realities. If the 20th century should have taught us anything, it is that secularism and humanism do not work. Where they were tried in the 20th century, people died by the hundreds of millions because the, the, the wicked heart of man was un, unshackled, if you will, from the restraints of the conscience, from the restraints of the good law of God. You see, when there is no God, there is no eternity, there is no future, there is no judge, and it's only kill or be killed, and it's survival of the fittest, it creates the environment for the, the, the depravity of mankind to flourish and express itself to the fullest. So you cannot remove God from the picture. We cannot save ourselves. Our hope is not in, in more education. Our hope is not in social programs. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Alone. He alone is the one who can save us. And he, is, he alone is the one who can build his kingdom in our midst and can build and will bring heaven to earth one day. So when we gather, as we have today with God's people every week, we don't gather to be told something new, but rather we gather to be reminded of what is true. And so Paul says, to tell you the same things, to repeat myself. It is no trouble for me and it is safe for you because the same medicine that our world needs, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the same medicine that our soul needs day in and day out. The grace of God received by faith in Christ. It's the same, same medicine that we need for our souls we do not need some new doctrine. We do not need some new twist or take on scripture. Rather, what we need to do is cling, as the song says, cling to the old rugged cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. It is our only hope. So week in and week out, we lift up the word of God. We herald this truth. We worship Christ. We partake of the table that our souls would be steadied in the midst of our unstable times. To be reminded of the same things is safe for us. It's Spurgeon who said this, new doctrine is dangerous doctrine. We don't need some new take and some new twist. What we need is the, the, the timeless, the eternal truth of God's word borne out for, for us, sung together. We sing those truths. We, we hear our voices proclaiming those truths. We, we sing from the depths of our soul. We, we open the word of God so that our souls would be steadied. It is safe for us. It's what we need in times like these. 
It's what we need in good times and in bad times. Paul told Timothy, be instant in season and out of season to preach the word. There's only two seasons. It's in season or out of season. What what do we need in good times and bad times? We need the word of God. Sung, preached, practiced at the table, lived out in our lives, practiced in our family. So to to preach the same things for me to preach or for Paul to write the same things to you is no trouble and is safe for you. Now moving on to verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Can we just for a moment appreciate the fact that Paul, in sacred scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls false teachers dogs? Can we just enjoy that? Or can I just take a minute to enjoy that and you can just sit there with me as I enjoy it? Now, in the Greek language in the New Testament, there's two words for dogs. There's the word for the household pet, the, the, the beloved, endeared, cherished sort of member of the family. I know some of you are, are dog lovers. You, you, you love your dogs like they're your own kids. God bless you. <laughs> Wonderful. It's just great. I thank the Lord for dogs. Some of you are cat lovers. Okay. Whatever. I mean, to each his own. Some of you have fish. Whatever. It doesn't matter. So there's this household pet, okay, of a dog. You, you guys know those. Now, there's another word for dog in the New Testament. And this is the word used for these, like, roaming packs of diseased and mangy animals that would roam the cities at night, terrorizing everything in their wake. They weren't the household pet. Uh, they, they weren't the, you know, the little chihuahua and the carry-on. Uh, th- these are more like wolves. These are dangerous. These are deadly. A- and they uh, were despised in Paul's day. A- absolutely despised. And so these are more like a wolf, what Paul is describing, than a chihuahua. Nevertheless, he calls these false teachers Dogs, dogs, dangerous, diseased, wolf-like animals that are deadly to interact with. That they run in packs and they prey on people that get in their way. He also calls these false teachers evildoers, literally workers of evil, workers of evil. It, it, and, and he says that we, as God's people, should be on the lookout for, watching out for, being cautious of these types of false teachers. Dogs, evildoers, literally workers of evil. And just to put, just to underscore the point, Workers of evil are not working for God. 
Workers of evil are working for Satan. Do you understand that? If you're a worker of evil, you're not on God's side. You're not doing the Lord's work if you're a worker of evil. And then he goes on to call them those who mutilate the flesh. Now what Paul is talking about is the false teachers of his day, uh, the ones he confronted in the book of Galatians, these false teachers that had infiltrated these churches that Paul had planted. You can read the book of Galatians. Probably takes you about 15 minutes to get through. I'd encourage you to do that. He, he thoroughly rebukes this particular false teaching, which taught that you are not saved by grace through faith in Christ, but rather you are saved by your own meritorious works. And this culminated in this false teaching of circumcision, which was the Old Testament sign of the covenant that God had given to Abraham and was part of Mosaic law. And these false teachers were teaching that faith in Christ was not enough for salvation, that faith in Christ was not enough to have your sins forgiven. But truly, if you wanted to have your sins forgiven and to be made right with God, you must become circumcised. You, you must complete a work of the flesh, and that ultimately would lead to your salvation. This, of course, is a false gospel. This, of course, is not the true gospel, which is that we are saved, not a result of our own good works, which the Bible declares is as filthy rags, but rather we are saved by the work of Christ. We are saved by Jesus' work for us on the cross, that Jesus on the cross paid the price for our sin. That on the cross, God made him who knew no sin. Jesus, we sang it this morning, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, innocent, helpless, went to the cross, laid down his life, was slaughtered, shed his blood, and had our sin laid upon him so that his righteousness could be laid upon us. He was made sin so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and so that we could be declared righteous, so that through faith in Christ we are justified, declared righteous by God. Now we're all in this process of sanctification, which is be, being made righteous, but our position in Christ is that of righteous. And so when the Bible addresses God's people, it addresses us not as sinners, but it addresses us as saints, as holy ones. Because positionally we are in Christ, we have been declared righteous, not a result of our own works, but as a result of the work of Christ, paying the price for our sin. This is the gospel. We are not saved by our own good works. In fact, Paul calls this false gospel. He says it's another gospel in the book of uh, uh, Galatians. And he says that this other gospel cannot save you. And in fact, he says that those who are preaching this false gospel are anathema or eternally damned. So false teachers that teach false doctrine, that teach another way of salvation, that distort the gospel of Christ... They are not workers of righteousness, rather they are evildoers. They are working not on God's behalf, but on Satan's behalf. 
And Paul says that, in fact, they are agents of Satan disguised as angels of light. For, for what purpose? Well, to deceive people, to lead them astray, to give people who have believed a false gospel a false sense of salvation, to, to believe that they are, in fact, falsely saved when they have not believed the true gospel and it's only the true gospel that Paul says is the power of God unto salvation. Now, there's nobody today that has any sort of real uh, platform that is teaching this doctrine anymore. You, you can't go to a Christian bookstore and find a, you know, a, a, a book on why you have to be circumcised to be saved today. <laughs> Nevertheless, there are false teachers today. Just because this false teaching has gone out of style doesn't mean that Satan isn't using this method anymore to try and infiltrate the church today. And notice here, he's talking about false teaching in the church. It's not about what's happening out there. It's about what's happening in the church. And it's God's people's job to be looking out for, watching out for false teaching. So in our day today, what is the false teaching that is so prevalent? I'll give you the two that I think are the most dangerous. Uh, the first is, is sort of the false teaching of, I would say, the past generation, my dad's generation, uh, but that it continues to find new voices even today. And that's what's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches you to use God to get rich. That's the prosperity gospel. You can use God, you can use God's word, you can use godly principles to get rich. The, the, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel because God is not the object of worship. It's idolatry because wealth and riches are the object of worship. They're what's being sought after. And so, again, this false gospel of prosperity teaches you that you can use God to get what your flesh really desires. How many of you want to be wealthy? Hello, all of us, right? Nobody here is taking a vow of poverty, right? <laughs> Nobody here pulled up in your Amish cart today, right? Like, right? I, so... so our flesh, it's a desire of the flesh. And the false gospel teaches that you can use God as a means to gratify your flesh. So the glory is not in Christ, which as we saw in verse 3, that those who are true believers worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Rather, prosperity gospel flips that and says, use Christ as a secondary object to get what you truly desire, which is wealth. Sometimes they'll throw in health. Might as well throw that in as well. Happiness. Now, these false teachers do not put the glory on the eternal, but rather on the natural things of this world. And those who teach these doctrines are predators, who target weak and vulnerable people, fleecing God's flock 
to satisfy the lusts, their own lusts and their own evil desires of their wicked hearts. And so they prey on God's people by saying things like this. If you want to be wealthy, and God wants you to be wealthy, all you have to do is send me a $1,000 offering and you will start walking in prosperity. You need to sow your seed into my ministry and you will be wealthy. It gets even worse when they start promising health because there's a lot of sick people that are very desperate. There's a lot of sick people that have have gone to the doctor and, and gone through every single option and there is no other option. And then along comes these charlatans who say, well, send me a $1,000 offering in faith and your son, your baby will be healed. It's anathema. Those who teach this doctrine are damned. That's the word of God. And then they take that money. They rob on false pretense from people that are hurting from people that are sick, from people that are impoverished, and then they live the most lavish of lifestyles, buying for themselves multiple, multi-million dollar mansions, living like kings, multiple, multi-million dollar jets, so they can fly around the world to their multiple million dollar mansions. Now, is wealth evil? No, wealth is not evil. In fact, wealth, I believe, can be acquired in life if you work hard, if you steward your resources, if you have integrity and you have honesty. I believe you can experience the blessing of God. But that's not what these people teach. They teach, if you want to be wealthy, send me your money. That's a false gospel. Now, I'm also pro-health. But if you want to be healthy... There's certain things you got to do. You got to eat right. You got to exercise. Two things none of us want to do. But the key to health is not to send these liars, these wicked men, your money. In fact, I could think of about 600 other things that you would serve you better to do with your money than to send them to these false teachers. One of them includes wiping yourself and flushing it down the toilet because then at least you would get some utility out of it. These people are not even ashamed of their misdeeds. Rather, they glory in them. They put their, their, their wealth on display. In fact, there's a, a social media account that documents the lavishness of preachers. Their... their, their, their insane clothing choices that they preach in. It's called Preachers in Sneakers. You can go look this up. Preachers preaching in every single week, different $1,000 shoes and $1,000 belts. I didn't even know belts cost $1,000 until I started following Preachers in Sneakers. They don't even, they're not even ashamed of it. They parade it. They glory in their flesh and not in Christ. Again, there's nothing wrong with health and wealth. If you're sick, we'll pray for you and believe that God will heal you. Amen. 
That's what the Bible tells us to do. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong for working hard and being a good steward and then using wealth for the kingdom of God and to be generous and to be a blessing. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with people in the name of Christ saying, give me your money and you will be wealthy. Do you understand the difference? Now, this was a false teaching, again, like I said, that was a little bit more prevalent in the past. It's still hanging around. People see that it doesn't work, and so it, it, it sort of runs out of steam and then finds some new voice to start preaching it again. Don't be deceived. The Bible says, look out for false teaching. But there's a second false teaching that I want to highlight today that I think is more dangerous to the church today that unfortunately is becoming more prevalent and embraced in God's church and is finding a voice of false teachers to proclaim this deceitful message. And that is false teachers who teach the exact opposite of what God's word teaches on the ethic of human sexuality, gender, and family. There is a growing chorus of false voices who claim to be faithful pastors and preachers who drape themselves in the rainbow flag and preach a message that says you can be gay and be Christian. You can live in open, unrepentant, homosexual, lesbian, transgender, queer lifestyles and be included in the family of God. Now the Bible is very clear that all expression of sexuality outside of marriage is sin. All expression of human sexuality outside of marriage Marriage, I would say, as defined by God, which is one man born as a man, married to one woman born as a woman, in, in Christ, in covenant relationship, monogamous relationship, any sexual expression outside of this, the Bible declares is sin and needs to be turned away from, needs to be repented of, needs to be brought to the foot of the cross and left behind and so this includes, but is not limited to, homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, transgenderism, premarital sex, fornication, adultery, and pornography. Any sexual expression that it's outside of God's covenant of marriage, as he defines it, is sin. Additionally, the Bible teaches that men are men and that women are women, that they are not the same. We're both created in the image of God. We both are bestowed with dignity and value and worth by God. Your life matters because you were created by God. And there is a difference between men and women. There are biological differences, there are spiritual differences, there are emotional differences, there are soulish differences. We are not the same. 
Now, up until 20 years ago, everybody knew this. This was not controversial to say what I'm saying 15 minutes ago. But we live in a world that is rejecting God and to reject God and to find its fullest expression of secular humanism, it has to logically reject everything that God declares, everything that God teaches. So in God's word, there are some things that are ambiguous. There are some things that aren't abundantly clear in God's word. This subject, however, is not one of those areas. The Bible could not be more clear on this subject. In fact, God's word starts addressing marriage, gender, and sexuality on page one. Page one. Page one is where we find out what marriage is. The whole concept of marriage is because of Genesis chapter one and two and three. This is where marriage comes from. It is not a social contract. It is not a societal construct. Marriage is from God and is defined by God as one man and one woman. The Bible is abundantly clear. And this clarity starts in Genesis 1, continues in Genesis 2. And from there, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a clear, consistent, cohesive given throughout the whole Bible with no contradiction, no variation, and no deviation whatsoever. There is no place that you can find in the Bible where it says, well, maybe homosexuality is okay. There's not one place. There's not one place you can find in the Bible that says premarital sex, adultery, fornication, pornography, any other sexual expression other than in marriage. There's nothing in the Bible that would give any indication that God is in any way for, it, for any of that. Instead, what it consistently says over and over and over again, even though, again, the Bible was written by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents over a, pan, a span of 1,500 years, there is one consistent message throughout. And that is that marriage is between a man and a woman. And that every sexual expression other than that is sinful and should be turned from and repented of. This includes even our Lord Jesus, who when questioned on marriage in Matthew chapter 19 by the Pharisees who questioned him on marriage, he asked them this question, haven't you read your Bibles? Have you not read? And then he quoted, guess what he quoted? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Jesus was not silent on this issue. The Apostle Paul is not silent on this issue. The Old Testament, the New Testament. Anywhere you look that touches this issue, you will find one single, clear, consistent message. However, though that is the facts and though that is true, there is today no shortage of so-called pastors who will glad you, gladly teach you the opposite. Amen. 
There's no shortage of today of people who will say the exact opposite of what I've just declared to you. Both of those things cannot be true. One of them is true, and one of them is a lie. I'd like you to flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 quickly today. Flip back just a few pages in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9. First Corinthians 6 and verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of of God. Then he says this important phrase that comes up again and again and again in the New Testament, specifically with when dealing with sexual ethics, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. There is truth and there is falsehood. There is truth And there are lies. And there are those who are teaching lies in the name of Christ. Watch out for them. Be aware of them. They are deadly to your soul. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. There is a spirit in our age that is warring against the spirit of God It is the spirit of the Antichrist. It has been around for the last 2,000 years. And it is expressing itself in the church today through a total embrace of what God's word clearly defines as sin. The great problem with this is these false teachers are not preaching the cross. They're not preaching repentance. They're not preaching the gospel. So they are affirming people in their sin and damning them to hell. This is evil. This is wicked. Paul says that these people are evil doers. The gospel is that you are not good, but that God is good. The gospel is that you are sinful, but God is holy. And there's only one way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to a holy God. And that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the message that goes out with the gospel is repent 
of your sin and turn to Christ. Turn away from sin. Turn away from death. Turn away from the path of Satan, the wide path, the broad path, the easy path, the path of being accepted by the world and accepted by the culture, and follow Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. That there's no way to receive Christ truly and fully if I continue my life the same way I've always lived it. I haven't repented of anything. And so these false teachers do not preach repentance. In fact, (laughs) it may surprise you to find out that repentance is actually racist. (laughs) Along with everything else, including math and English and just about anything else under the sun. That there are those today who say that if you preach repentance, you're actually racist and preaching racism. So they relabel the true gospel as racism and they share a false gospel that cannot save, does not save, but gives people a false sense of salvation, but ultimately damns them to hell. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And verse 11 says, but, but such were some of you talking to the church in Corinth, such were some of you, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Listen, if you today are in some sort of alternate sexual lifestyle, there is hope for you today. Your hope is not to be affirmed in your sin. Your hope is to rather be confronted with the truth of the gospel, to repent of your sin, which we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and to turn to Christ in faith and to receive his grace upon grace. Such were some of you, but you were washed. How many of you are thankful that you have been washed and cleansed in the blood of Christ? Amen. So anyone who teaches something contrary to what God's word says on these matters or refuses to address these issues when questioned on them is, by definition, a false teacher. If if a so-called minister of God, when questioned about these issues, refuses to teach what the Bible clearly teaches, they are by definition a false teacher. Now this is a theme that Paul's going to return to again in verse 17 of Philippians 3. In verse 17 of Philippians 3, he says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. If a man of God refuses to teach what the Bible teaches on these matters, they are a false teacher. They are more concerned about what people think about them than being faithful to God and his word. Paul calls them dogs. Now you say, am I, am I calling them dogs this morning? Yes, I am. I am calling them dogs. You may think that's rough, but the Apostle Paul called them dogs. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to call them dogs as well. And if you think that's rough, just wait for the day of judgment when they will stand before God and be accountable for their false teaching and the souls that they have taken with them to hell. God takes sin seriously. Where in the word of God do we ever get the idea or impression that God winks at sin or overlooks sin? If you, for some reason, think that what the cross represents is God somehow overlooking sin or winking at sin, in fact, it's quite the opposite. The cross represents and shows us how seriously God takes sin. I know I'm running long today, but I want to finish uh, this verse 3. Where Paul goes on to say that we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who is the circumcision? We. Who, are the, who is the we? The saints. What he is saying is that we in Christ now who have received Christ, just as circumcision represented the covenant people of God in, uh, of the Old Testament saints, we now who are in Christ are the covenant people of God. We're part of the new covenant. This new covenant comes with new benefits. This new covenant comes with new promises. This new covenant promises forgiveness of sin. This new covenant promises victory over sin. This new covenant promises the power of God that we sang about this morning. That same resurrection power lives in us. And this new covenant promises our ultimate resurrection of the dead and the glorification of the body in living with Christ for all eternity when he returns to set up his kingdom forever and ever world without end. So this new covenant, we are part of it. We now are the circumcision. We now are God's covenant people, the family of God. And with the covenant promises also comes covenant living. Covenant living. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this idea that you come to Christ and then live however you want, it's totally foreign to the word of God. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, the Son of God says, if you love me, you will obey my word. So these covenant promises comes with covenant living as we live out the word of God. 
And it manifests ourselves as we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Listen, if there is no truth, you cannot worship God. You're worshiping a false god. You're worshiping an idol. So these false teachers that distort the word of God, that pervert the word of God, that teach a false gospel, are also teaching false worship. But we are not like that. Notice Paul draws the distinction. He draws the distinction between God's faithful people, his covenant people, and those who listen to false teachers, who follow false teachers who are deceived and self-deceived and on the way to destruction. We are not like that because we have the truth. We believe the truth. We embrace the truth. We live the truth. We obey the truth, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. From the inner parts of our being, we worship God. We don't worship God from the outside in. We worship God from the inside out. From the overflow of our heart, our affections of what Christ has done for us, we stir them up and we sing our praises to God. But we worship God not only with our lips, but also with our actions, also with our lifestyles. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But before he says, he says that, he says, present your bodies to God as a spiritual act of worship. And when we come to Christ, it's not just, oh, I'm here and, and now I'm saved and now I'm going to heaven. It, it's, no, you, you have, take all of me. I am yours. My, my body, my soul, my spirit. I belong to Jesus. If you are in Christ, you belong to Jesus. And we worship him by obeying him, by obeying his word, by not conforming our lives to the pattern of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, having our minds transformed by the truth. And the more pure the truth that we embrace, the deeper our spirits can go in worship. If we do not know the truth, we cannot worship God. But as we receive the truth, who is Christ, the embodiment, the personification of truth itself, we can worship him even from the depths of our spirit. And so this translates to more than just lip service. Because if it's coming from your heart, if your worship of God is coming from your heart, your spirit, it will express itself not only in your words, but how you live your life. And again, we see Paul drawing this distinction. Saying those, there are those that teach what is false and follow what is false. But that's not us. That's not us. Because we hold to the truth. We hold to the truth. Paul draws this distinction between true believers and false believers. 
False believers do not glory in Christ. Rather, they put the confidence in the flesh. They, they do not desire to worship Christ by obeying his word. So which are you today? Are you a true believer or a false believer? Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you desire to know him? To obey him? To be in his presence? To know his word? Though we're not perfect and we fall many times, the Bible says though a righteous man falls down seven times, he gets up again and again and again. So it's not that a righteous man never sins, it's that a righteous man knows where to go to have his sins forgiven. To turn from them and turn to Christ. Do you have a desire to obey Christ? Or do you find the things of God to be boring? Are you uninterested in the Lord? Are you uninterested in the church? Are you uninterested in the things of Christ? Are you uninterested in the word of God? Dear friend, if that's you here today, I would plead with you to examine yourself. If you find no interest in the things of God, if you find worship to to be totally boring, if, if week in and week out you come to Destiny Church and you're just counting down the minutes, I would I would ask you, I would plead with you, examine yourself. Because the true believer loves the Lord. The true believer loves his word. The true believer, though not perfect yet, wants to live for Christ. Wants the name of Christ to be honored in his life and in his body. The true believer holds to the word of God, even when it is not popular, even though it may cost him. The true believer is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would hate for you to sit here week in and week out and hear the gospel and hear the truth and hear the word of God preached and to live with some sort of false assurance of salvation that you are saved simply because you came to church. We are not saved by our own works. We are not saved by our own righteousness We are only saved by the work of Christ. And to receive that work, we must repent of sin and turn to Christ in faith, clinging to his propitiation, clinging to his sin-atoning death, which is our only hope of being made righteous before a holy God. 